Last week we finished up First uh, John chapter 5, going verse by verse through the entire book. And you thought I was done, but no, uh, it's a good time to kind of go back through the whole book and just kind of recapitulate what's there, what, what have we been learning through the book of First John. Every time I've told this story, um, somebody has said, that ought to go into a sermon somewhere. You know, it's one of those stories, and I, I, I didn't know where to put it. So, story's almost 50 years old now, and I haven't put it in a sermon. So, I thought, maybe it's time to bring that one up. So, here it is, all right? My uh, roommates and I were um, decided to move off campus our senior year at college. So, this story goes way back to the 70s, all right? And uh, we rented a three-bedroom house on a 200-acre farm. And we were sitting there, my housemate, we had three bedrooms, his was next to mine, and we were sitting there in front of a big picture window, looking out over about 70-acre pasture, and up through the pasture, we see something hopping. And Mark says to me, he says, what's that? I said, that's a possum. He said, man, wouldn't it be cool if we could catch that possum and use it somehow to play a prank on Scott, the other housemate. And the reason for that was because Scott was from Wyoming, and he was always, you know, with his roping and all the stuff. He, he was the outdoorsman. So we needed to prank him in an outdoorsy way. And I said, well, just catch the possum. He said, you can't do that. And I, in my redneck fashion, I said, hey, Mark, watch this. I'd already experimented with possums. I grew up in the country, and so I knew what to do. I went out the door, jumped over the rail of the porch, and I started running as fast as I could run straight at that possum. I knew when I got there I was going to scare him to death, and I did. I got there, ah, scared him. And he just cowered down and jumped in a bush and just froze. And I turned around and said, Mark, you're a possum. What you going to do? And Mark says, uh, we need to tie him up somehow. I said, well, get a rope. I'll watch him. So Mark goes and gets a rope. He goes into the closet, gets a little rope. And while he was in the closet, he noticed some fluorescent yellow paint. Glow-in-the-dark paint used to caution people for things. He brings the paint. He brings the rope. I tie the rope onto the possum's foot while he's spray-painting the head of the possum glow-in-the-dark yellow. We walked the possum back into the house and put the possum on Mark's bed. Tie it to the headboard. And then we waited, not Mark's bed, Scott's bed, waited for Scott to come home. When we see the lights, headlights hit the driveway, we turned off all the lights in the house. The possum was asleep on Mark's head, the pillow, yeah. We throw the cover over the possum. And we hide in the living room behind the couch. Scott comes tiptoeing in, trying to be quiet. Goes across the living room, opens the door to his bedroom. All the lights are off. He said, I'll just keep the lights off. Goes to the edge of the bed, takes off his clothes, reaches for the cover, and he hears something. He pulls back the covers. And there standing at him was this glow-in-the-dark critter hissing for life. And Scott screams, Ha-ha! Oh, that could hurt somebody! And we all 
Mark and I fell in the floor laughing, and then Scott knew something, you know, was up because the possum was tired. Well, we cut on all the lights. We let the possum go without harm. But, boy, we laughed, and we laughed. I think that's one of the kind of stories we will still talk about in heaven. The glow-in-the-dark possum. I can't forget the image, and it's that way when I look at 1 John. There's things that just glow. There's just things that come out of darkness and light up. And I want us to see those this morning again as we look at them. I've got them here. God is a God who wants us to have happiness that satisfies. He wants us to have a holiness that sanctifies. He wants us to have a hope that is secure. And he wants us to beware of heresies that shackle. And if, as I look through 1 John again, it's like, what are the major themes? And these are four that just glowed out at me. And I want us to just kind of go back in to say, hey, this is a good book. And I need to go back to it time and time again. Let's first of all think about this happiness that satisfies. Look at chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So it's John talking about what he's seen and heard Jesus. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Wow. Think about that a minute. God has commissioned John to write so that our joy can be made complete. He doesn't want us to have halfway joy. He wants us to be satisfied. He wants to have a happiness that really satisfies. And where is it found? He said, I'm, I'm writing this for this purpose. And what's he writing about? He said, I'm writing about a fellowship I've seen and heard from Jesus. I want you to see and hear from Jesus through what I write. And indeed, as, as you just listen to my testimony of Jesus, you will be come into a relationship with him. And the relationship's not only him, it's God the Father and God the Son. And in that relationship, not only with them, but with us, with each other, we will have a joy that's complete. You know, you can have joy in things, but the things break. You lose them. They're gone. He's speaking about a joy that's in relationships. If you've ever lost somebody dear to you, you, you're just always satisfied when you're around them. You realize what brought you joy was the relationship. This person built you up. You built them up. It was encouraging. And you miss them. They've gone through this barrier that separates heaven from earth. And you long again for that barrier to be removed and that satisfaction to be brought to you. He says you can have that right now through because God the Father, God the Son, come to us in the Holy Spirit. And they are with us. And there is no barrier. We have a fellowship with God and with one another. But we're on the same page 
with one another in relationship. Um, look at a couple other passages here. 1 John 3, verse 10 and 11. It says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The church, Christians are those who love one another. We practice righteousness. We have a love for one another. Look at 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved but God that loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's created a church of relationships. I love you. I want you to love each other so that your joy can be made complete. I want this fellowship to just grow through love. One other passage, chapter 4, verse 21 says, chapter 4, 21, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, it's, it's obvious who you love, who you don't love. When you come to the body of Christ, you say, these are the people I love. This is... This is my family. And that takes us to a whole different level of satisfaction to be able to hang out every week with lovers of God, lovers of one another. And God says, I created this so that you're not doing life alone. You're doing it with me and you're doing it with one another week after week after week. That creates a joy that satisfies. Go ahead, turn on the television, look at the internet, walk through life and see the folks that don't have that. Their joy's fleeting. Their joy's in things that are temporal. They sit at home lonely instead of getting together with God and His people. They don't have family like we have family. God's created for his people a relationship that makes life matter. It matters and it creates uh, happiness for us. That's why we do small groups. That's why we do discipleship classes. That's why we do one-on-one -on -one discipleship. That's why we get together in worship. That's why we have things for kids. It's, it's these relationships that make life significant. That's why we have fellowship time between this service and the discipleship hour is because it matters that we get to spend time with one another. If you're not experiencing that, if you're just always running off, if you're always lonely, come back to see First John is a message that says, no, God has designed it for us to do life together, to love one another. And as we share our story of God loving us with one another, the fellowship just grows with God 
and with one another, and it makes our joy complete. I bet there's not a lot of people that say, my joy's complete. It's full. I got all the joy I can handle. We have a God that has designed that for us. First John is a book that's just telling us over and over and over of these relationships of love that need to be happening in the church so that our joy is full. It really is complete. Second principle that just glows for me here is a holiness that sanctifies. Look at chapter 2, 29. Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There's to be a practice of righteousness. Righteousness is life according to the law, according to God's word. Um, if you're born of Christ, sure as you're born of Christ, you practice a life of righteousness. Why? Because Christ is righteous. If somebody says to you, uh, somebody recently said to my daughter, that's your dad, isn't it? And yeah, she says, yeah, that's him. She said, I knew it. I could tell by the way, way y'all look, the way you talk, the way you act. There's family resemblance. Why? Because we, have, we share the same nature. She comes through us. Any child that comes through you shares your nature and has that resemblance. Well, what if we had the nature of Christ? What would that be? What would that look like? The nature of Christ is righteousness. He says, as sure as you're born of God, you have this righteous resemblance. You begin to live life according to the law of God. People begin to see that's Christ-like. That's the way Christ lived his life. And that's the way we live our life. That sanctifies us. Wherever, whatever state you're in, if you're right now a non-believer, you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, doesn't matter the condition. Wherever you are and you trust Christ, you grow in sanctification. You get cleaner and cleaner and purer and purer and more righteous because the Christ begins to work in you, taking us from wherever we are to where he wants us to be. And he says the end goal is that we are conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29. He says, that's, that's my goal for you, is that you become more and more like Christ. That's why I call it a holiness that sanctifies. It takes us where we are and grows us. A couple other passages. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's a book that keeps telling us how we don't have to practice sin. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, I'm writing. It says, you, you begin to realize now in Christ, you don't have to sin. If you do sin, you have a God who pleads for you to be righteous with the assurance that you will be, that he will make us more and more like him. 
chapter 5, verse 18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We looked at that a few weeks ago. It's that what a, what a joy. We're not trapped by the devil. The devil has the world in its trap. You have to act like a son of the devil if you're not a son of God. He says, once you receive Christ, you become a son, sons and daughters of God. He says, I keep the devil from touching you. We saw it in baptism. The sign of baptism is a sign that I'm going to look and see that's mine. That's my child. That's the one been marked out for me. So I'm not going to let the destroyer, I'm not going to let the devil destroy that one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to put the word of God in front of them until they receive it, until they repent and believe, and I'll sanctify them and keep, keep them all the days of their life. The beauty of that holiness that God gives us. You know, we've reached uh, a place in our American history, and we celebrate this week our independence, but we, we've reached a place where our morals are in deep decline, are they not? And it makes me wonder how many of our Americans are believers, because in Christ there's a holiness that is with us and surrounds us and sanctifies us and draws us back to the Word of God. So our priority as believers, contrary to the world that seems around us, as you walk your, in your mind through the Ten Commandments, the first three commandments clearly about worship, having no other gods but the one true God, um, worshiping the way He has described and designed uh, not having profanity on our lips, but honoring Him with what we say. Our world, they're not looking at God first. They're not looking at His design. Profanity's everywhere. We're profane people. But the church of Christ is a holy people, set apart, being sanctified, and growing in righteousness. The fourth commandment, we set apart a day to worship our God. We keep a day holy, set apart to worship, to adore, to get together as his church, his body, and fellowship together. Um, it changes our lives. What if our nation still honored a day for God? Sixth commandment, we don't seek to destroy life, we preserve it. Seventh commandment, we preserve marriage through faithfulness. The eighth commandment, we don't take one another's private property, we respect each other and what God has blessed us with. The ninth commandment, we're all about truth, not lying. And the tenth commandment, it's not about envy and coveting what others have, but it's about being content with what God's given us. That's the life of the believer. It's a holiness that sanctifies. Our nation's turning away. We turn back and we grow to be more and more like Christ. Daily news. You know, I began wondering, I, I, 
I didn't quite figure it out at first, but why I don't like the evening news anymore. I grew up always watching the news, 6 o'clock news. But what's on? What's on is disregard for God, disregard for life. They want to tell us about all the murders that have happened this day, all the deaths that have occurred, all the accidents, all of the profanity, all of the stealing, all of the coveting. The news is about how much we break the, the commandments of God. And that's not my life anymore. Our lives are about how we keep them, how they sanctify us, how they guide and direct us. And so we're not celebrating unrighteousness, but we're celebrating the righteousness that's found in Christ. And our growth, our joy is in that. It's a holiness that sanctifies a happy people who are satisfied in the fellowship of his holy body. Third thing I want you to see is a hope that secures. Chapter 5, verse 13 I write these things. You notice these starting these sex. I write these things. These are the things that glow out of the book. I write these things because I want you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I want you that I want you to know that you have eternal life. I want you to have a certainty. I want you to have a hope that is secure. Not that something you think so. Maybe it might happen. No, I want you to know you have eternal life. I want you to be certain where you're going to spend eternity. So I've written things to let you know that for sure. Chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He is in us, because He has given us His Spirit. Other places, the Bible talks about the Spirit being a seal put upon us, a promise given to us that we're God's. We have His Spirit living within us, opening our eyes to understand the Scriptures, opening our eyes to see truth, opening our eyes to see Christ. Oh, Lord, send Your Spirit to me that I might see, that I might behold the wonder of Your law, that I might see Jesus, that I might see how You want me to live, where You want me to go. And that's what God does for us. He gives us His Spirit. Um, you know, it's kind of like some of you parents who you're going on a date for the first time since you've had little ones, and they, they understand mommy and daddy's leaving, and you understand they're kind of scared, and you set them up with what? A babysitter, you write down numbers, you, you need dad and mom, call this number, this, uh, we've got our cell phones right here. You want them to know everything, i got the babysitter, We'll be back this time. Don't have to worry about it. Why do you go through that? You want them to know they're secure. We are still with you. We've got one in place of us right here in the room. We've got our numbers. We've got access points. You can get us anytime, anywhere, any place. And God does that for us. So I, I leave my spirit in you, always with you. You'll, you're never forsaken. You can cry out to me anytime, day or night. I am with you. Your eternity is secure in me. I want you to know that. So I want you to feel that. I want you to understand that. I don't want a people that walk in doubt and in darkness. 
but come out of that darkness and live. Um, what a beautiful uh, foundation he gives us, security he gives us in his spirit. Let me move on to a heresy. Do we have it? Yeah, all right. A heresy that shackles. But well, I gave you the three things that just kind of blow up out of 1 John. The devil wants to destroy all three. And he destroys that by heresy, by getting us to try to process it wrongly, differently. As, as Joe said, as you think in your, your thoughts, it, it determines how you're going to act. Whether you're going to be in praise through good theology or through bad theology, where you're going to end up losing your happiness, losing your security, losing your sanctification. Um, chapter 2, verse 18. 218 says, Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So they're antichrists, people who teach bad doctrine, and they're trying to deceive you. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7. says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteous is righteous as he is righteous. You know, again, the world's trying to deceive. And then one more. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We live in a hostile world. A world that's constantly speaking about something and constantly seeking to lead others and us away from the Scripture's Christian truth. There's an attack upon Christian happiness. Um, where is that attack? It's been mentioned already this morning. Let me show you a passage. Chapter 4, verse 20, 21 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. So I said, people trying to deceive you. I said, relationships is where we're going to find our happiness. Relationship with God, relationship with one another. So people come along and say, you don't need to, to love God. And you don't need to love the church. God says, they're lying, you know, right? I told you, don't let people deceive you. It's not, tr it's not a true statement. That you don't have to love God. You must love God. It's not a true statement. You don't have to love one another. You don't have to love the church. That's a lie. It's a lie from the devil. And it's a lie from the person who wants to destroy your happiness. Because your happiness is going to come from your relationship with God and your relationship with the church. So the very person who says, well, I don't need church. I said, well, you don't need to be happy. You don't need to be fulfilled. You don't need a joy that's complete. You want to go through life halfway. You can do that. I prefer to be all in. Have all the happiness and joy God has designed. I prefer to live a life with God and His people. 
Because that's how he designed it. The people who think otherwise, they're lying. They're deceivers. That's an attack. That's a heresy that shackles us and keeps us back. What does a shackle do? Holds you down. Pulls you back. I want freedom. I don't want to be shackled. We must recognize the heresies. And God's given them to us so that we can see them coming before they get here. Number two, the attack against Christian holiness. Look at chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So there's deception against holiness. That we don't have to even talk about sin. It says, that's a lie. No, you've sinned. It needs to be dealt with. Verse 9, that same passage. Confess it, and God's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. He said, I want to forgive. Don't be deceived in thinking you don't have to walk in the light. No, you're walking in darkness if you're not walking in the light. So many times people are leading us away from holiness, not towards it. Chapter 3, verse 7. Again, have read, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Obvious. People are attacking that. So you don't, you don't need to live so good. You don't need to live so consistent with God's word. Just, just do your own thing. Call it living under grace. And God says, but it's a lie. It's a heresy. And it shackles you. It holds you back. Living consistent with God's design for you frees you. You're unshackled. And you get to enjoy all that comes with fellowship with God as opposed to missing it through sinfulness. Third attack, an attack against our Christian hope. Chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father, and the Son. We looked at the fact that saying that you deny Jesus Christ is not saying you deny that He exists. We know He exists. We know He was a human. It's a denial that He's God, that He's an authority. He's your supreme Master and Lord. It's a denial of living for Him. It's a denial of following His ways. It's a denial that He's the Messiah, and He is the one who leads us. That's what happens. And many people want us to deny Christ every day by denying His ways and His words, His plan for our life. We need to see that heresy. It shackles us. They want to hold us back. God wants to set us free. And we know what sets us free. It's truth. Not deception. It's truth that sets us free. We want that truth. We want to be freed from that heresy. Be free from the shackles. It destroys happiness. It destroys holiness. It destroys our security, our hope in Christ forever and ever. Um, what will First John do for you? It's going to challenge some presuppositions. I think I've told you already once. I'll tell you again. 
in the book of 1 John, you have the word know, K-N-O-W. You have that word, K-N-O-W, know, for, oh, 40 times. 40 times. God said, I want you to know. I don't want you to be in the dark. I don't want you to be shackled. I want you to be the most knowledgeable people on the planet. I've given you five chapters that you can immerse yourself in and come out of it with knowledge about your eternal security. You come out of it with knowledge on how to be holy and right before God. You come out of it with a happiness that you know is true and real and last. And you take it into glory. You don't lose it. Because you've already broken the barrier. And you begin to have fellowship with God and His Son and His Spirit. God wants us to know. Um, the challenge is to know. Don't have to presume. You can know. Do you know a happiness that satisfies, that's complete, that's full? Do you know a holiness, a set-apartness in God that sanctifies you? Do you know a hope that never leaves you in doubt? Always leaves you with security. That's what God has for us. Let's pray together. Father, what a book that you've delivered for us, so practical with where we live every, every day. Father, forgive us for not meditating upon your word in such a way that it radically changes our lives and conforms us to your image. Lord, there are folks in this room this morning estranged from you. They've been ignoring you. They haven't thought of you. Lord, draw them into the sweet love and grace that we enjoy. May they not be estranged further. Their family, their friends, their neighbors of ours. And we want to see them included. We want to see them experience what we experience in Christ. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come and again be set on course rightly as we live this week, as we think about how this country was founded and where we need to go as a land. Return us, O oh Lord, to you, to your ways, individually and corporately, as a church and as a nation. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.